Right. If you want to turn in your Bibles today, we're going to read the scripture from John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Thank you, Becca. This is the word of God. Lord, I pray that you bless your word towards us today. Bless us by a clear understanding of your word. Help us not only just be listeners of your word, but be doers of your word. Speak to us today, Lord God, as our true shepherd. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today is the last day of our series on the last, the lost art of gratitude. In general, we are very much people of ingratitude. Um, what if you had today what you thank God for yesterday? In 27 days, you'll go on YouTube, you can go on YouTube and you can type in ingratitude and you will be bombarded with videos of children and full-grown adults who lose their mind because they got the wrong color iPhone for Christmas. It's pretty entertaining, um, but it's, it's ridiculous. It shows exactly how in, ingrates we truly are, um, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. That was William Shakespeare. We feel entitled to a lot. We find out how much we feel entitled to when we lose it. When we, live, when we live in ingratitude, it's really the opposite of worship. Worship is the correct expression toward God for his character, nature, and works. Ingratitude is not even acknowledging God's character, nature, and works. We esteemed him not. From Mark Twain, if you pick up a starving dog and make him prosper, he will not bite you. This is the principal difference between a dog and a man. The inspiration for my series is today, in fact. At the beginning of the month, I saw that the last Sunday of the month was the first Sunday of Advent, but it was also the start of Hanukkah. You might be wondering, why do I have this stuff going on here? I'm going to explain that in a bit. Um, at sundown today will be the first day of Hanukkah. Um, I knew the, it's interesting, so I was, I was reading up on Hanukkah, I knew the history behind Hanukkah, I just didn't know it was the history of Hanukkah, and I found out some things that were very, very powerful to me. Um, I was looking for a video, I was just going to make a brief mention of Hanukkah today, and maybe just a little bit of the history behind it, but I watched this little video on Hanukkah, and it started off by talking about how there was a, there was a time in Israel's history where they were growing up with stories of the Red Sea, stories of prophets, Stories of people who spoke directly with God, but for 400 years, nothing. We call it the intertestamental period. And this was from a Jewish perspective, and he says, we still live in this age of silence. And that was the impetus for this whole series, because I'm like, no, I don't. 
I live in an age of God constantly speaking. I hear his voice. When I read about the story of Hanukkah, I realize, man, there is so much I should be thankful for in Christ Jesus. The Jewish people grew up with stories of prophets and miracles, but I live in a day where the greatest miracle is within me, salvation of Jesus Christ, a new creation. When I heard that in the video, I stopped it and I started worshiping. Why? Because I was awashed in the miracles. And the one that starts it off from from our perspective is that we don't live in an age of silence. Really what this age is really more like is an age of purposeful, selective hearing. Um, all of us remember when we were kids and it was amazing. Our parents thought we were deaf because they would tell us it's time to wash the dishes, time to clean our rooms. And, you know, it was like nothing was happening. You're playing the video game, you're reading the book, you're watching the movie. Then all of a sudden supper's ready and it's a miracle. I can hear again. And we go in there. It's like, you just, you just selectively hear me. That is the kind of age we live in today is selective hearing of God. Thanksgiving didn't happen last Thursday. No, dear one. Thanksgiving is not turkey and football, though those are things that to be thankful for. Thanksgiving should be your lifestyle and my lifestyle. This is God's will. From Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, because this will really benefit you a lot and encourage your mental health. No, it doesn't say that. Because this will open up to you the realms of blessing. It doesn't say that. It says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances, rejoicing always is the blessing. First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, once again, is the reference there. It's not a means to an end. It is an end. While it is true that if you are not faithful with little, you shouldn't be trusted with much. We get that from the parable of the talents. If you remember, this is a story of Christ. He talks about three servants. One gives, gets one talent, one gets five, one gets ten. No, one gets one, one gets two, one gets five. Sorry about that. And uh, we read that, and now a lot of times we misunderstand the word talent, and we think like, you know, the ability to sing. No, this is like a measurement of gold. Okay, the one who only gets one, he gets it taken from him. And that is true. The one who has little, even what he has will be taken from him. The one who has much uh, more will be given. If you're faithful with little, you can be trusted with much. But if you are not faithful with little, even what you have will be taken from you. One thing that we kind of skip over, every servant in Christ's story here is given a lot. A talent of gold is an outrageous amount of money for a steward to be able to handle. Every single person in that story is given incredible grace by God. But you know what envy does? Envy looks at our talent of gold that we can't even hold. And it looks at the guy who has two and say, why not me? Why is he better than me? Or the one who has five and we're like, well, all I have is a talent of gold. I can only buy a small nation with this. It's like I have nothing at all. (laughs) That's what ingratitude does. But gratitude takes what we have and makes it enough. That was Aesop who said that. We'll never be happy with the Ford Taurus as long as we're looking at Bill who has the Escalade. In review, first I talked about being thankful for healing. Second, thankful for forgiven sin. Third was God's presence. For the month of November and leading into Advent, it was my intention to reveal to you from the scriptures the prime reasons for thankfulness. 
These are yours if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins. These are our brothers and sisters as well from around the world. Each one is a shadow now, but it will be something much greater when we see him face to face. Let's take healing, for instance. I do believe physical healing is part of the atonement. It is something we experience here on this earth, but not everybody will receive supernatural physical healing on this earth. It's a fact, and, that's, and it's okay, because all of us will receive the greatest healing in the new age, the resurrection. We don't talk about the resurrection much in church. You can't read the New Testament without understanding the, the resurrection. I think, unfortunately, because we are so, so comfort-centered, we want to know, what about right now? What about, like, right now? If I die right now, what's going to happen? The great hope of the early church was the resurrection of the dead. Sometimes we have this, it's, it's called a Gnostic view. I'm not going to explain it exactly, but the, it's the idea that everything physical is corrupted and, and sinful and should just be destroyed. But God made Adam good. He made him a physical being good. And we are a united person, and one day we'll be completely united again in the resurrection of the flesh. So healing is, is one of the things we can be thankful for. Even if we've never, never had a great miracle of healing in our life, all of us will experience the promise of God's healing. This is some, somewhat of a hard lesson because, once again, not everybody does receive physical healing on this earth, and it doesn't make you less of a Christian or that you have less faith. To put this in, I, this was an incredible, um, incredible example for me this year. Um, Phil in our congregation, God healed him of uh, pneumonia in both lungs. Me and Becca had a friend from college, I won't say her name, because she just recently passed away from COVID. Um, she's a believer, people prayed for her, and she still passed. But I can still say glory to God. I can still say blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I can still say, um, though he slay me, yet will I praise him, because he is still good. And the promise of healing and the thankfulness for healing is not just simply what is he doing for me lately, but what he has done. Second, forgiven sin. Your worship, your love for God is in direct proportion to how much you believe you have been forgiven and how much you believe you need to be forgiven. The one who loves much has been forgiven much. The one who loves little has been forgiven little. And the sad part about it, all of us have been forgiven much. The problem with Simon is that Simon thought, well, I've been forgiven little, so I don't need to love little. No, you've been forgiven as much, if not more, than that woman did. Three, God's presence David danced before the Lord when the Ark, Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem because it represented God's manifest presence. Where does God dwell now? Not in an ark, not in a temple. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? What a great question. God is like, where, where should I dwell? Where's the house you will build for me? Where's the great thing? Why don't we make a, a huge monument to God all over America and say, this is where God dwells because he doesn't dwell there. Where has he decided to dwell? The answer is later on. But this is the one to whom I look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It used to be the song we'd sing in church and we'd sing, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. 
where is the house you will build for me? And it goes on and it finishes, uh, where will my resting place be? And I, I always love the chorus, it always gives me chills. Here, O oh Lord, have I prepared for you a home. Speaking of our very hearts, that we've prepared for God to dwell with us. It's the great promise of all of the scripture, especially Advent, Emmanuel, God with us. Today, we are thankful for the voice of God. And that leads me into the Hanukkah story. The Hanukkah story um, happens in the intertestamental period of 400 years. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament is 400 years. This is a theological dark age in that there is no prophets. There is no miracles. There's really nothing so much going on, but actually tons of things are going on. It, uh, there's a lot of interesting things. I was, I was telling myself this morning, Jason, this isn't a history lesson. You need to just keep it in perspective. So I'm going to try my best. A lot of cool things happened. Um, for instance, um, when we leave off in the Old Testament, Persia is the uh, rulers of the known world. They get supplanted by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great um, unites all the Greek city-states and ends up conquering all these different um, places, including Persia, including Israel. And Israel, he's one of the only conquerors in all of history that when he conquers Israel, he leaves Jerusalem alone. He doesn't throw, I mean, when Babylon conquered Judah, they threw their babies from the walls. That's, and they were considered mild compared to other conquerors. Alexander the Great was gentle. He was magnanimous. And because of that, the Jews, there was many Jews who almost worshipped him. They were Hellenistic Jews. You'll read about that in your New Testament, Hellenistic Jews. And that's where this comes from. It's those who, um, they, they admired the Greeks because of the um, generosity, because of the mercy that, that Alexander had, show, had shown them. And so they uh, became, they wanted to be like the Greeks. They would speak the Greek language. Language. In fact, the Greek language, Koine Greek specifically, became the language of the known world. And uh, these, uh, these Hellenistic Jews clashed with those who wanted to observe a more traditional Judaism. And this uh, came, to a, came to a head when a uh, man named Menelaus, not a Jewish-sounding name, of course, comes from the uh, Trojan War. The king of Sparta was named Menelaus. And this guy decided he wanted to be the, uh, the high priest. And the reason why I'm kind of laughing, because like, you know, in the scripture, you don't get to just decide, I want to be a high priest. Um, there's a line of succession. There's all things you have to go through. But he decided, you know, instead of going through that, he's going to pretend like he's on a Klingon starship and just challenge the current high priest to one-on-one um, -on -one combat. This, this happened, and he kills the former high priest to become the new high priest. There's a lot of tensions, and a lot of Jews are pushing back against the Hellenistic Jews. And um, during this time, the rule of, uh, the rule of uh, Israel changes five times, and Alexander the Great dies. His two sons take over. They get assassinated almost immediately. And the uh, Greek Empire gets split into two and then many more. I've got some slides at the end there, Emma, I want to show here. Now, I always, I always wonder if I need to do maps, but I was told maps are cool, so I hope you all feel that way, because um, I'm going to go over this real quick here. Thank you very much. You can see some of the factions here. So, uh, Seleucus, Seleucus, there we go. Um, that is the main one, and that is the one that we'll be talking about today, because it's from the Seclu Secludans. Um, 
comes one of their emperors named Antiochus. Antiochus was brutal. You can go to my next map too. I don't know if you're able to see this very well, but I should have grabbed my laser pointer that I have for my cats. Where the orange meets the green, that's about where Israel's at. So Israel's a constantly fought over piece of land amongst the Greeks themselves. Um, Antiochus is a brutal little man. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in a second. He conquers that. He wants to go conquer, he wants to go conquer Egypt. So you can see that we're Memphis and stuff, not Tennessee, but Egypt. Um, he goes over there to conquer the, uh, to conquer the Egyptians and take that, um, that property away from the uh, other, the uh, Plomics. Um, who are there, and a Roman captain um, shows up to meet him. This is an awesome story, too. Uh, I'm going to say it. Okay. Um, this Roman captain goes to him, and he tells him, okay, the Roman Senate, and Rome is just barely making their way in the world at this point, but they're starting to strut, and they're starting to ex um, exercise their authority, and they tell the guy of the largest Greek state, they tell him, um, we, we had a vote and we decided if you invade Egypt, we are going to be at war with the Republic of Rome. And Antiochus, he's like, oh, I don't know about this. Let me talk to my generals and stuff. And what the guy does, he takes his sword and he scratches a circle around Antiochus. And he says, you leave that circle without an answer. You're going to be at open war with Rome. I want an answer right now. And Antiochus, he, he, he totally... Um, he totally capitulates to this Roman captain um, in a little cowardly display. He's a little brutal man because then he goes back to Israel and he's furious that they're not being Hellenized the way he wants them to be. And these are some of the things he does. He outlaws the Torah. If you are caught reading the Torah or with the Torah, you are tortured to death. It's brutal and it's terrible. So every Torah he finds, he destroys it. He forbids circumcision. If you circumcise your child, he has his overseer strangle the child in front of the mother. He demands that they eat, they eat pork. He comes to one, um, he comes to one of the priests and he demands he eats pork. He refuses, so he tortures them to death. There's a woman named Hannah. She has seven sons. He goes to each one of her sons and each one of them refuses because they believe the word of God. They believe that they are Jewish and they are not going to become Greek for this man. So he tortures every one of them to death in front of their mother's eyes. She stone, stonily looks back at him because she will not even give him her tears. He then goes too far. He goes too far and he sets up a statue of Zeus in the temple of the Lord. Remember when we were talking about the Ark of God and how, how incredibly... Now, the Ark of the God isn't there at this time. This is, this is the new temple that was made under Ezra and Nehemiah. He puts up the, uh, a statue of Zeus in the, in the holy place. And then he takes a pig into the Holy of Holies, kills it, and sprinkles its blood on all the holy relics of the Jewish people. If this is sounding familiar to you, you must have read Daniel and read about the abomination that causes desolation. If you want to know, I'm not going to, I'm going to kind of end the history lesson almost here. Um, and uh, if you want to read more, though, about what the Antichrist will really be like, read about Antiochus. He's almost, he doesn't, he doesn't fulfill every prophecy of the Antichrist, so he's not the Antichrist. He's like an Antichrist light, L-I-T-E. Um, 
And uh, so he goes too far. And when he goes to other people, in fact, there's one person he pushes too far. And his name is Judah Maccabee or Judah Maccabeus. That's why I have the uh, sledgehammer here. So Maccabeus and, Ma- and, uh, and uh, Maccabee, you can read some of this in the Deuterocanonical books, meaning they're not canon, they're not the word of God, but there's the books of First and Second Maccabee, which has some of the history, but not all of the history. So what Maccabeus meant was sledgehammer. So he goes to him and his family, demands that they eat pig, that they do these things. So what, uh, so what, Ma- what uh, Judah does, or Judas does, he goes to the mountains and he decides it's hammer time and uh, gathers a, a, a large army. Now, I say a large army, but nothing compared to the secluded Greek forces that are in Israel at the time. They have no training. They are farmers. They are peasants. They are fishermen, and so on and so forth. Something amazing happens. They drive off the Greeks. They drive off the Greeks, and they initiate 129 years of Jewish independence. You're going to like this part. So... This is known as the Hasmonean dynasty. For 129 years, the descendants of the, Ma- of the Maccabees end up becoming two camps of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Jewish state is recognized by the Roman government as a, as a sovereign territory. Um, unfortunately, what happens in many dynasties, there's infighting, there's two major civil wars. One civil war is then... is. Uh, is squelched by a um, pharisaical uh, woman whose uh, husband had died. Her two sons then take over as king. They can't get along, and they weaken they weaken Israel to the point to where Rome just gobbles them up like a layup. As Josephus, the Roman historian, writes, because two brothers could not get along, we lost our freedom and our liberty to Rome. 400 years, there is only one maybe miracle. And let's get back to Hanukkah. Hanukkah um, is, known as the, is known as the festival of lights. It's eight crazy days. There are three symbols typically associated with this holiday. One is the drazel. I didn't have one. I should have got one when I was at Target, but I didn't. Anyway, um, it is a spinning top. Why this is associated with Hanukkah, remember I said that if you're caught with the Torah, you're, you're, you're killed. So you couldn't be caught with the Torah, but people wanted to be faithful towards God by teaching their children about God's plan for them. And this is what this was. Now, it's a top. It has four words on it. So this is different sides of it. Um, each one of these is the letter of a word that it can be associated with one of the nations that had oppressed Israel in their past. You can also use it to teach from the Exodus and many other things. And um, the idea is you spin it and uh, you can't see any of these letters because they all come to nothing compared to God. And eventually a redeemer will come who will conquer all. Getting to our scripture in a second here. Um, you're probably understanding where we're getting to here. Pretty fun thing about this. So they, they invented this so that when the overseers came and they would see them doing something, they would go and see if they were reading the Torah or something that was forbidden. They're like, no, we're just gambling. Can you imagine like when you were younger and you were hanging out with your friends and, you're, and your parents bust in? What are you doing in here? Are you reading the Bible? 
No, 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 we're just gambling. Oh, that's okay then. I was afraid you're doing something dangerous. Ah. Another symbol associated with Hanukkah, and I, had to, I have to go back to this because I, I don't think I can even pronounce this. The sofagia, I, I did not pronounce that well, but it's the jelly donut. Which, I mean, I got to admire anybody who's like, how about jelly donuts for our, uh, for, for our celebrations? The word, the word for it means um, spongy. And, okay, I, I, I love how they shoehorn this in because there's a miracle, there's one miracle associated with Hanukkah. It's not even the battle or anything. And it has to do with oil. And they're like, because the bread absorbs the oil, we should eat donuts on Hanukkah. So impressed. It's awesome. Finally, the menorah, the nine candle stand. There's only one miracle associated with Hanukkah, and it has to do with the lampstand at the temple. When the Greeks were driven away, the temple once again had been defiled. So they had to go on the process of cleansing the temple. And one of those things was to light the ceremonial candles. Of course, those candles were with oil, not candles as you see here. And they only had one jar that was undefiled. It was only going to be enough for maybe one day. So they light it. Thank you, lighter, for working. Um, they light it. They come back the next day expecting it's going to be, it's going to be gone. And it's not. I talked about the intertestamental period being an to be in a dark age. When you feel like you're in the darkness, is there still the light? It's a time of silence. Is there a whisper in the silence? Does God still care about his people? Every day they come back and the fire is still burning. That is why even to this day, Jews, when they celebrate Hanukkah, every day they will light one candle, the menorah, with the center candle. The center candle represents the provision of God. And every additional candle represents a day of his grace where the candles are lit, that our God still knows we're here and that he still cares. It's interesting that this is the first day of Advent. The first candle of Advent is the prophecy candle. Advent comes from the Latin Advitus, which means coming. Because the great desire of the Old Testament is that there would be a Redeemer. From the moment Adam and Eve fell, there would be a Redeemer. When the people of Israel, they're in Egypt, and they're crying out to God, would you send a Redeemer? Moses comes, but he's not the Redeemer. All throughout Judges, you have the circle, you have that horrible circle that happens where you get complacent. So the idols come in because the idols come in. God's hand of protection comes off of you. You are oppressed by your, by the conquerors. You cry out for a deliverer. The deliverer comes and then you have a time of peace. You get complacent. Here comes the idols. Here comes the oppressors. Here comes the crying out. Here comes the redeemer. But there would be a redeemer who would be forevermore. The menorah then represents a light in the darkness, a whisper in the silence. I think I have a slide that just says that. The menorah then represents a light in the darkness, a whisper in the silence. I realize I have much more. So the thing that they're like, 
our God still listens to us. Our God still hears us because he made the candles light for eight days, but I have the Holy Spirit inside of me. I hear the voice of God. The scripture Rebecca read today, he was telling him, you can't hear my voice. You're not one of my sheep, but I'm one of his sheep. I hear his voice. From Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former days, he brought into the contempt, he brought in contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Nephilite. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, a light has shone. When I started this series, I had picked out the scriptures. I had picked out the prime reasons I believe we should be thankful for toward God. And I picked out the scripture. I didn't realize this when I picked out today's scripture. It is the only verse in the New Testament that mentions Hanukkah. It doesn't mention it by name. It talks about the feast of dedication. If you read in your Old Testament, there's no feast of dedication. This is something that the early readers understood automatically. We don't. So I went through all of this so that we would have an understanding of those who first read this, of why people had such great expectations towards Christ. It wasn't just simply David and Samson, but it was recent history of throwing off an oppressor. So as we go through today's scripture, I want to talk about great expectations. Two, I want to talk about hearing and listening and three, the gift. And in Great Expectations, this is going over verses 22 through 24. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Hanukkah is right around, is right around here in December. The Feast of Dedication, we currently, we currently call this Hanukkah. Jesus participates in the life of the community. This was already a feast and a celebration in Israel at the time of Jesus. Every year, the Jews would talk and dream about the time they rose up against the Greeks and defeated them. We may look at the Jews and the Romans and wonder why they thought they ever stood a chance, but it wasn't too long ago they threw off the oppression of the Greeks. But when the Redeemer, when God's Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God would come, it would be forever. It, said, it talks about Solomon's colonnade, Verse 23, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Jews are surrounded in the memories of ruling themselves. They are not content being under the Roman thumb. This is apparent due to the revolt after revolt. Eventually in 70 AD is probably the most significant date in Jewish history because Rome finally has enough and they utterly obliterate Jerusalem and the temple and the prophecy of Jesus that one, not one stone would be left on another comes to fruition. Now one brook is laid upon another when, the Roman, when Rome destroys the temple and crushes Jerusalem. There is this cycle of redemption in Israel. All of Israel history can be summed up in this, in this one phrase, this one cycle. The same cycle we see in Judges. Idol worship. They are then conquered, oppressed. They cry out to God. A redeemer comes. Good times happen. Now we go back to the start. Complacency breeds idol worship. They are conquered. They're oppressed. They cry out. The Redeemer comes. Good times. It keeps going along and going along. We even saw this in the intertestamental period with 
um, Judas Maccabeus. Jesus comes to break the wheel. Sometimes we get so complacent, this is just the way the world is. But Jesus comes to break those expectations. Let's talk about the expectations of Christ here in verse uh, 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So there's a very specific reason why the Jews would say this, why they were expecting Christ to be a political leader who would throw off the Romans because they just remembered this with Judas Maccabeus. And all of them carry this kind of thing in their head. If it wasn't for these two brothers who couldn't get along, we'd still have our liberty. But when the Messiah, when Christ comes, goodbye Rome. When it came to the Messiah, many in Israel believed that he would be like Solomon or David or Samson, just bigger and better. He would destroy Rome and all of Israel's enemies and initiate a dynasty that would last forever. There are two major reasons a first century Jew would believe this. One, you have the scripture. Many of the things I just mentioned are sort of in scripture. However, not in the specifics of what they were thinking. We do the same thing, right? We want a tame God who will work miracles on our timetable and the matter, manner we choose. They also have recent history. Why did the Israelites think that they had a chance against Rome? You see the movies and you see a bunch of um, people who look like they just completely defenseless. They weren't defenseless. They had an army. They had a 129-year dynasty called the Hasmonean dynasty. They had reasons to have this great expectation of Jesus. Once again, wanting him to conform to their expectations instead of conforming to his. Ultimately, all of this was short-sighted. It was too small. He came not to save Israel alone, but all of the world. Everyone has expectations of Jesus. Since we are now officially in the Advent season, let's talk about the expectations of Christmas, of the birth of Christ. In the, in the Bible, people hoped he would be a political leader, but today there are so many other warped views of who people think Jesus is and want him to be and do for them. We have the self-help Jesus. God helps those who help themselves. Many see Jesus as just kind of an inspirational figure, a Tony Robinson. This is how Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of the United States, believed Jesus to be. He made a New Testament that, that uh, took out all the miracles of Christ so that he could just appreciate Jesus as a wise leader. Many people are very much comfortable with a, a, a uh, coffee mug Jesus. On the other hand, you have people who just want a miracle worker to entertain them. This was Herod the Great. When Jesus was brought before him, he wanted to see a miracle. He wanted to be entertained. Many people, this is what they want from Christ. I talked um, a couple weeks ago about this gal over in Africa who wanted us to pray for her because she just saw a miracle. And we prayed for her, and then afterwards we want to talk to her about Jesus. She didn't want anything to do with it. She didn't want to go to church. She just, she just wanted the healing. You have the Jesus of promotion. Many see Jesus as a cheerleader for mankind. He's not about the Father's business unless the Father's business is about promoting you. I think this is why we see so many former pastors, worship leaders come out as agnostic and atheists because Jesus was supposed to promote them, but it didn't go their way. So now what Jesus do they believe in? They have to choose a different Christ, a universal Christ. You have the political Jesus. You remember WWJD? What would Jesus do? I thought this was a ridiculous saying because half the people who wore those bracelets had no idea what he did do. And you can't even begin to answer the question, what would Jesus do unless you understood what he did do? 
And everybody believes Jesus is on my side. Abraham Lincoln was asked that. Is God on our side? And he told him, I don't know if God's on our side. I just want to be on God's side because that's the best side. You know, the greatest miracle is not somebody coming back from the grave like Lazarus. It's not. I mean, we, we kind of hold that up as the apex. You want to see God really move? It's somebody who will be risen from the dead. That's not the greatest miracle. It's not the greatest miracle you see in the Bible. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's like he's clearing his throat for the crescendo because the crescendo is the cross, the tomb, and the empty grave. A resurrection of dead flesh is nothing compared to the resurrection of a dead spirit. And all of us here who have repented and put our faith in Jesus Christ, this is what we have. And it is why we can hear God. This is why we hear and understand and listen to Jesus. Verses 25 through 27. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. It's there for you. I told you. Some wisdom can only be spiritually discerned. Everything about the Messiah was there in the Old Testament, but few, very few got it. Why? Because some truths can't be understood mentally. They are only accepted by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say I am? They had had all kinds of answers. Then he asked him, who do you say I am? Peter told him, you are the Christ of the the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by human flesh, but by my Father. He says, I, I, I say that you are Peter, which means little rock. And he says, upon this rock, not Peter himself, but his, his, his statement of he is the Christ of the Son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. There's a spiritual deafness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Verse 15 and 16, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, this veil is removed. A sheep follows the shepherd and hears his voice. David, the great king, the one who won, the guy who won many battles, killed giants, lived in palaces. What was his true desire? Well, his son was wealthier than him, wiser than him, more prosperous than him. But only David is called a man after God's own heart. Only David is honored the way he is in the New Testament. Why? It is the answer to this question, what do you want? Solomon was asked this directly, what do you want? And he answered, well, great. He said, wisdom to lead your people. And God was impressed with the answer. David wasn't asked directly, but he answered much better. One thing I ask for the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David reveals his life ambition in Psalm 23, that he wanted the Lord as his shepherd. I've got a slide up here, if you want to get to it, about when you are the Lord's sheep, you can't be anyone else's. But if you're not the Lord's sheep, you will be everyone else's. I was talking to my wife the other day. We were just talking about just various things. I was like, I'm kind of almost like the ultimate skeptic, and it's not really something I, I try to be. It's that I've given all my faith to Christ. So anything that requires faith, I just don't have it to give because I've already given it all to Christ. See, a believer can be, be deceived for a small period of time, 
But if you are a sheep with the shepherd, you hear the shepherd's voice and you run from the stranger's voice. For a short period of time, you might be deceived, but you can't be deceived forever. Because his sheep hear his voice. These people coming up to Jesus, he had already told them they didn't believe him because they're not his sheep, so they can't understand what he is getting at. Does Christ know you? This is the ultimate question. We ask people all the time, do you know Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior? Really, the question we want to get down to, though, is does he know you? Some people think, well, no, I mean, I know about Jesus. This, this uh, morning in Sunday school, Jessica asked the question. I, I wrote it down on my phone because I wanted to answer it today. It was, she asked the question, when, when was the time you understood the cross? I get what she was talking about because there's times in my life growing up, going to church occasionally that we did. And I remember a time going to Sunday school. My youth pastor would say, if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, raise your hand. And my hand stayed glued to my, hand, glued to my pants because I didn't think I needed anything to be saved from. I thought I was one of the good people. You know when I understood the cross really was when Christ confronted me about my sin. Oh, the wonderful cross. It bids me come and die and find that I can truly live. Oh, that meant nothing to me before. But when Christ made me alive, all of a sudden the cross, the bloody, ragged cross is beautiful. It used to be foolishness, but now the wondrous cross. And the cross doesn't just stand there as a piece of jewelry. It says, come to me and die. And we find that we live. It is something that's spiritually discerned. It is the gift of God. Since we are in the Advent season, Christmas is coming up. Let me talk about two gifts. Jesus says, talks about this in 28 through 29. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. We have three promises there. Eternal life, never perish, will not be snatched out of his hand. What does God give to his sheep? Eternal life. This is a reversal of the sheep-shepherd dynamic. Mainly you ask, what does the sheep give to the shepherd? His life, his wool, Milk, I don't know, do people milk sheep? But anyway, um, sheep, I mean, I said that wrong. Anyway, Christ collapsed his own metaphor because he doesn't talk about what the sheep gives to the shepherd, but what the, what the shepherd gives to the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He gives his sheep living water. He gives his sheep bread from heaven. We have a security in this. Now, I know this is kind of hard for us. We don't, we don't teach eternal security here, but there is security in Christ. You don't have to constantly be afraid. Oh, I lost my salvation today. You are safe in the Father's hand. No one can pluck you out of his hand. I said before, a true sheep of Christ is deceived for a short period of time but cannot be deceived forever because you only hear the master's voice. All of us maybe have stories about times where we are momentarily deceived. and probably a source of great shame. But we are in the Father's hand and no one can pluck us out. I believe we can wiggle our way out but nobody can take us from his hand. We can have a confidence and we don't have to constantly be worried. Did I lose my salvation today when I blew up at that person? If your salvation is based on your performance, oh dear me. I can see why people make up, I shouldn't talk. I, I can see why people make up alternatives to the afterlife that are not just heaven and hell because I'd need something like that because I don't, if it's based on my performance, 
based on Christ's performance. And a person, I believe a person who, quote unquote, loses their salvation is somebody who has made a choice and not somebody who just, whoops, I slipped. Christ is the Father. A popular pastor was asked by a Muslim for evidence in the New Testament that Jesus says he is God. Well, let's read that evidence in 29. My Father who has given them to me, he is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the, I and the Father are one. He speak, this guy speaks to auditoriums and stuff like that. I can help him out right here is one of probably thousands of instances in John alone that he compares himself to the Father. You know how I know this? I know some people try to explain this away that he's saying like, we're all children of God or whatever. But the people who hear him, they take up stones to kill him because they believe he's blasphemed by comparing himself with God. Jesus Christ is the Father and the Father is Christ. Now, let me rephrase that. That's, that's a little confusing. He and the Father are one, as in they are all, that Christ, the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are God, but God the Holy Spirit is not the Son. God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father, God the Father. Um, there's a certain separation in the Godhead, but they're all, the God, they're all God. You always have to be very careful in what you're saying when you come to the Trinity, because you might just wander into heresy and not know it, so I had to make sure I want to make that clear. He is God as much as God the Father is God, for they are one in essence, three in persons. The gifts of thanksgiving, eternal life, and Christ's bride. There's a worship song we used to sing called How He Loves Us. Awesome chorus. How he loves us, oh, oh, how he loves us. I don't think it went like that, but those are the words. Um, there was this line that irked me, and I would always change it while I sang it. And then when I was up on the uh, video thing, I would change the words so that I could have my way. Anyway, um, this line was, and we are his portion and he is our prize. No, it's actually the exact opposite in the scripture. It's the exact opposite in actually what we just read. Who is the prize? We are his prize, the father. We are given by the father to the son as a pure spotless bride. We are his prize, but he is our portion because he is all we need. He's more than we need. We're not all he needs. He existed for eternity before us. He'll exist for eternity of those who have denied him and are, are in hell. And he will never be less. He's never more with us. We are not his portion, but we are his prize. He is our portion. That is why our gift is eternal life. As I, as I wind this down, worship team, you can come up here. I want to talk to you real briefly about how you hear the voice of God. God is speaking. Now, if what you mean by that is that God is giving more revelation, new information, then you're, you're wrong. How do I know you're wrong? In Hebrews 11, 1, in, in chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir over all things, through whom also created the world. In these last days, he's spoken through his Son. Let me get out what I'm talking about here. I ta I, I've, I've really gone into this in depth in other sermons, but I briefly want to say that if somebody says, I have a new revelation from God, run the other way. 
In the former times, he spoke to prophets in many times in various ways. In these last days, he's spoken through his son. What the Holy Spirit does is encourages us in the word of God. It encourages us in the word of God. And it helps us, it gives us the strength to, to, to live each day. So here are the ways that God speaks to us through the scripture. We call it God's word for a reason. It is literally God's word. Some people want to try to make a delineation between this. It's not really God's word unless you memorize it and speak it out loud. It's not what it says. Faith comes out of hearing, hearing by the word of God. Also the inward testimony, the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you, and the Holy Spirit will do many things. It'll call your mind back to Scripture. This happens to me all the time. It happened to me this morning. Many of the verses I I read to you today weren't written down. I just know them Um, because the Holy Spirit does that. He reminds us of of God's Word. The the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit also gives us discerning the spirits. It tells us what is good, what is right, what is the profitable things. We also have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. When you want to respond in anger, but you respond in love, you are listening to the voice of God, and you are cooperating with the Holy Spirit inside of you. We also have the charismatic gifts, which encourage us and build up the church. Gifts of um, speaking in tongues with the interpretation of tongues, of prophecy, of words of knowledge. We have godly counsel. Preaching today, that falls under godly counsel. You have godly advice grounded in the scripture encouragements to stay the course. Many times I find when somebody comes into my office and they're really dealing with something, they already have the answer. They just need me to encourage them in it. Sometimes people will say that they have no choice and they've already made a choice and they just want to feel better about it and then I got to set them right. But I find 99% of the time people already know what they need to do. They just need somebody to encourage them. The voice of God speaking. Finally, when people think about seeking God's counsel for decisions, let me share with you my, my steps to guilt, godly guilt-free decision-making. One, you start off with prayer. Sometimes it's like the last thing we do. We do everything we can do, and then we pray, and we pray that God blesses our plan that we've already made. Pray beforehand. You're going to pray for very specific things. You're going to pray for wisdom. You're going to pray for God to give you clarity probably one of the hardest things because we have all these things wrapping around in our head and we have all these self-serving things wrapping around in our head and things that we want to ignore certain parts of scripture for so we got to ask god for clarity open the eyes of my heart we ask for for god to direct us towards the relevant scriptures in our prayers as well that comes to the second the second step search in the bible for the verses that relate to what you are dealing with Sometimes it's not going to be a clear, this is good, this is bad. Sometimes it is, and we, got to, we have to own up to it. This is, this, is, this is a hard one when it's one that we really don't want to. Get real with you for a second. Somebody was talking with me, not here, not any place you know. Nobody would possibly know. And they were thinking about divorcing their spouse. And I'm like, well, you know, I went over some of the stuff in Scripture, and nothing like that applied. They just, there was other things, financial things, other things that just didn't qualify, they were dead wrong in what they were doing. And um, I'm like, and they were saying, but the Holy Spirit's telling me I should do it. I was like, no, he's not. Stop lying. Sometimes I got to be stern. And I'm like, stop ignoring what the scripture says. It does not, it does, just because you have a feeling towards something does not negate it. So we ask for that wisdom. We read the scripture, then we follow it. If we find that both choices or multiple choices, there's nothing in the scripture against it, 
as we pray, the, the Holy Spirit hasn't given us a certain amount of peace about any other one. We then search after wisdom. This is part of our prayer, but we also search after godly counsel and wisdom from people we know that are godly who can tell, us to, tell it to us straight. Finally, if we've prayed, we have not gotten specific direction. If we've read the Bible and we make sure that there's nothing against anyone, all choices are even. Um, we've asked for wisdom and we've been given wisdom, but there are still choices that are on there. Finally, do what you want because you have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. And if there was something wrong, if God doesn't want you to, he'll give you a check in your spirit, meaning he'll make you uneasy about it. And if that's not the case, then just do what you want. I know that's probably something that like you don't hear a lot in church. Just do what you want. Of course, you got to go through the steps before you can do what you want. But don't blame it on God if you're doing something you don't want to do. And you're like, well, I'm just being obedient. Well, okay, you could have done what you wanted. It's, it, it's, it's up to you. And sometimes we lie to the Holy Spirit by, by doing that as well. In conclusion, I want to talk about hearing the voice of God. Today is about being thankful for the voice of God. So many of us have forgotten what God's voice sounds like. I'm being metaphorical here, but when was the last time you heard, heard from the Lord? When was the last time you read your Bible and, and it spoke to you? I've said this before. If you can read your Bible consistently all through the entire year and there's not one thing that grinds against something in you, maybe you're ignoring those relevant parts. In fact, if you're worshiping God and God never disagrees with you, maybe you're just worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Do you remember what the voice of God sounded like in your life? I do. Every morning I go to God's word and I hear from him. I, I very passionate when people start attacking the Bible to, to not so much defend as so much unleash the lion of Scripture on them because God's word, it, God's word breathes into us. It means to breathe out, in fact, to expiate. It breathes into us like that first breath into our first father. Second here, stop selective hearing. I talked about this at the beginning. When we were kids, we had the selective hearing. Maybe we still sometimes do when our spouse tells us to do something. We're like, oh, I forgot. Um, we hear the voice of God. We just don't do it. We need to stop selective hearing. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Finally, we're going to have a time where we are going in to worship our final worship song. And are we doing Word of God Speaks? Awesome. Thanks, guys. I dropped out that on them this morning, and they were good enough to, uh, to get it ready. I thought this was a great song for us to sing when we're thankful for God's voice. Pleading to God, word of God, speak. We can go to the scripture. Hopefully you've memorized scripture. You're going to remember, remember scripture. The Holy Spirit's going to bring it to your mind as we are worshiping today. To hear that sweet voice of God, the voice of our true shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep who lays down his life for the sheep, who leads us into pastures for his name's sake beside the still waters. He restores our soul. Would you please stand as we do our final worship song?